Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. We continue in our study of Galatians, series titled Freedom. While you are looking for, uh, the, uh, for the pages, a couple of house cleaning things, um, first want to extend our thanks to everyone who participated this past week in the community shelter, particularly to Dick Turner who has coordinated it. It's a great opportunity for us as a church to be able to serve those who are our neighbors, the neighbors who have needs. And even while we were doing that, I was reminded, and I hope that we continually remember, uh, that, the, that the scripture reminds us that those who are in the most danger are not those who have nothing, but those of us who have plenty, because we are so prone to rest in what we have and not recognize our need of what God provides. But I do thank you for serving, and I hope that as you've interacted with people and heard their stories and recognizing that there is no one person, no one particular story, people are in different states, and um, we are called to love our neighbors. Second is uh, loving more within the family. As a couple of weeks ago, the church kind of got uh, a one-two punch in the gut when we heard Ken Omquist's uh, treatments had not First treatments had not uh, had the effect that they had hoped, and he would have to do something else. And then a couple days later to hear about Camper's um, need for surgery and his cancer. And then it was a reminder that of those who continually are suffering with things. We think of Dave Dowling, who continually wrestles with to control his cancer, and others in the church, that we have a lot of people who are hurting and broken. So some of the people in the church had asked me uh, if it would be appropriate for us to gather uh, to pray for those who are hurting and wanted to use the day of campers time of campers surgery or the approximate time since we don't know what time his surgery will actually be uh, but on Thursday at 11 a.m. there will be people gathering here to pray we don't know how many we could be three could be 300 we don't know and at that point it doesn't matter but we're going to be praying for all who are broken as we're able if you're able to join us and would like to come uh, then that would be wonderful if you're not able that's fine we just ask that you would use that time uh, to be praying for people, whether in our church or others that you know, who are hurting, that we would just intercede and lift those people up to the Lord. We're just reminded that we are dependent upon him uh, at all times, and so it's vital that we do this. Now, unless you are extremely slow with your fingers, you probably should have found the pages by now. So let's, uh, let's go to the Lord uh, and to his word. Uh, let's go to him in prayer first. Father, we thank you for the word that you've given us, that you have not left us to speculate about you or even about ourselves, but that you have love for us and have loved us in Christ. I pray that now as we consider your word, that you would bring clarity to our minds about Christ, about your gospel, about you, about ourselves, and that we would learn as your people to see you, to see the world, to see ourselves through the lenses of the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, bless us in this way by the power of your spirit. We pray in Christ. Amen. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? 
just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The word of the Lord. May he grant us understanding from his scripture. I marvel at those who are able to work with marble and make things from stone and and granite. The sculptors, the artists who are able to seemingly bring out of what me looks like a lump to show beauty and reveal the thing. Michelangelo once said, I think speaking for, I assume speaking for most artists, but simply responding to how he is able to bring such beauty out of stone, saying that I just chip away at all that's not supposed to be there until what is supposed to be there emerges. He said that in every block of stone there is an angel, and I just chip away until the angel is made free. And you see the beauty of their creation that God has endowed them with tremendous skill. But it's not only the artists that I am amazed with, those who would be considered artists and sculptors, but I would say even the craftsmen who may not create anything new, but work to restore art or architecture and bring out the original beauty, the original splendor of whatever it may be. I have an aunt and uncle who have a a early 18th century farm in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And when they bought it long ago, it's always been a nice place, but over the years, it's gone through several phases, not of additions necessarily, but of changes. Apparently, that the, over the years, from the early 1700s until even now, they have discovered at different eras that there have been fireplaces built on top of fireplaces on top of fireplaces. And so when they bought it, and it looked fine, but they realized there was a fireplace behind that and they brought in a craftsman who chipped away at everything and was able to reveal a much older, more primitive fireplace. Then realizing, someone realized that from plans that there was even another one and so they have gone through that several times. And each time they bring in a craftsman who goes to the fireplace and chips away all that is not supposed to be there without doing any damage to the original so that when he's done his work, what is left over was the original plan, the original artwork design of the original craftsman. It just amazes me. I neither have the dexterity nor the patience to do that. And yet the beauty of their work uh, is, is something that uh, I'm amazed uh, with. Not only them, but anytime uh, I see that. And that came to mind this week as I was reading this passage and thinking about the Apostle Paul in this letter to the Galatians. Because the Apostle Paul is a lot like those craftsmen as he is writing to the Galatians and writing for us. 
what he has been doing has been trying to strip away all the residue. And he, in this particular passage, is chipping away at the remaining arguments that some of the Galatians, or some of us, might have that would lead them to cling to the idea that our relationship with God is based on belief and our actions. He's just trying to strip it and help us to understand that the reality of things as God has revealed it is that Jesus plus nothing is everything and Jesus plus anything equals nothing. And yet it's something that we cling to or rather somehow clings to us. And so Paul, as we've read in the first couple of chapters, he's brought out some big hammers and he just kind of just slammed uh, the Galatians and continued to some extent here with his language saying, you foolish Galatians. And the language shows the intensity and the, uh, 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 how seriously he is, he's whacking away at this. But in the passage today, we also see that Paul, in really in three categories, is just chiseling away at whatever may continue to be lingering. Because Paul wants us to understand our brokenness and yet our restoration that is found in the grace of God through the person of Jesus Christ. He wants us to recognize that it's nothing that we have added or tried to supplement his work, but rather just resting in that alone for the relationship that we have with God. He's trying to chip away at our self-reliance. And Paul recognizing that even behind whatever has been added, whatever is behind that block, he understands that he is not done until all those who call themselves by the name of Christ recognize that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we have our deepest desires. That we recognize that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that that alone is the pathway that leads us towards God. And so Paul is chipping and chipping and chipping. The first part where he seems to give his attention to, we see in verse 1. And Paul says his argument here as he's chipping away, taking the chisel and, and his hammer to it. And he says, you have heard it. The second part of verse 1, he says this. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, again, the language that Paul says there seems to indicate that you have seen it. But he's using metaphorical language there. But it's not unimportant metaphorical language. I mean, we need to realize that it's a long distance between Galatia and Jerusalem. And there had been more than a decade had passed between the time that Christ hung on the cross and the Galatians had received the news of it. And so the idea that Paul is saying, you saw clearly before you, he's not suggesting that there was a group of people in Galatia who were probably standing there on that Good Friday, the day that Christ was being crucified, that they were actual witnesses of it. What Paul is saying is that he is confident that in the time that he spent with them, and the depth and the extent of his teaching and the focus that he was bringing to them and the response that they gave to what he was teaching, he is confident that they moved beyond receiving mere information. And they had what we would call an epiphany, you know, the aha moment. Information is coming and it's not necessarily fitting together, but you have that moment and all of a sudden everything becomes crystal clear so that what is being communicated is no longer words, but a picture in your mind. Paul is saying, look, when I was among you, Christ crucified was presented to you in such a way that you got it. You saw it. You saw it clearly. You saw it vividly. You understood. And therefore, you know. One of the things I like about studying the book of Galatians 
is that it presents Christ crucified very vividly before us. It moves away everything and then presents to us very clearly. It brings the gospel to the forefront of our mind. It helps us to refocus on it and to say, okay, I may have seen it before. I'm seeing it now as if the first time. Or perhaps I never understood it before. But now that it's being explained, as we look at what Paul is saying and saying what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't, we are able to see it. When you study the book of Galatians, Paul brings us back essentially to the basics, not just so that we can go back to first grade, but so that we can get on the proper footing so that we can grow. Just like a doctor who resets a bone that is broken, making sure that it fits, Paul is saying, let's make sure that we are all in accord because you never move beyond the basics. Tonight, after the Super Bowl game, the winning team will be given a trophy. It's known as the Lombardi Trophy. It's named after the coach of the winner of the first two Super Bowls, Vince Lombardi, who is famous for a number of things. Perhaps the most famous story of Lombardi happened after they had won their first Super Bowl. And as the team was gathered for the first day of training camp the following year as the reigning champs defending their title, he gathers these pros, these champions, these guys who were the best of their business. They're all kneeling around him, and he says to them, lifting up his hand with the ball, gentlemen, this is a football. Of course they understood that. They're pros. They're great. They're champions. They understood that. But what Lombardi recognized is that you never move beyond the basics. You don't put them behind you and move on. And Paul, in the same way, is lifting up his hand in the word and saying, gentlemen, this is the gospel. Don't forget it. Don't neglect it because this is everything. He brings us back to it. But why does he do that? Because it's necessary that we be reminded. I've used this illustration a number of times before, but it's important that we recognize it again. Luther was asked one day why he continually proclaimed that God's grace is justification by God, grace through faith in Christ. And he said, because you forget it week after week after week. We are so prone to forget. And Paul is reminding us that God has told him that it is essential that we never forget or even assume the elemental aspect of our faith, the very thing that determines whether we are Christians or non-Christians, the very thing that determines whether we belong to God or whether we belong to ourselves. And that one thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that we who are broken are loved by God and it's demonstrated that he sent his own son to assume our nature, that in him he would assume the punishment that we deserved, but in his death that we deserve to die, he rose again that we might have freedom if we would simply believe. I know that many of you grew up in churches that did not necessarily proclaim the gospel. Some of them are churches that did not, well, let's say believe the gospel was necessary. And others grew up in churches that where they understood the gospel was necessary for salvation. And yet, for pragmatic reasons, they really didn't focus on it much. They taught many, many other things, never denying the reality of the gospel, but putting it on the sidelines, assuming that it was a step on a path that you were beyond, rather than the foundation upon which all of our life is to be built. It's understandable why that might happen. The Bible is filled with truth on all sorts of subjects. And people are intrigued by different things. Some are fascinated and really are conscientiously wanting to know, what does it mean that I be a good husband, a good wife, or a good parent? What does it mean that I need to live my life with the ethics within the business that God has called me to and enabled me to? 
Some are interested in some, well, let's just say some weird or weirder things. Like, can I speak in a language that nobody else understands? What does it say? And do I have to speak in that language? Or can I, how, how does this work? Or when is Jesus coming back? And let's see if we can figure out all of these things so that I can interpret the news through the lenses of uh, Old Testament passages. Things that are not inherently wrong, things that the scripture speaks to and addresses, things that, ga- uh, that, that uh, take our, our attention. But things that, as theologian Michael Horton at times has said, really fall in the category of fascinations that lead from the cross. We take the Bible, we study its subjects, but we forget the fundamental, the only thing that really matters and the only thing that gives us power to deal with all of the other issues. We're just prone to forget. Galatians were people who certainly had heard the gospel. But obviously they had forgotten. So a reasonable question is, why did they forget? I mean, what would cause them to forget? And the answer is the same thing that causes us to forget. The Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the Romans, he told them that the reason that they were not hearing God or not seeing what God was saying is because they were, ob- they were ignoring that which was obvious before them, that all of creation even screams to. Here in Galatia, Paul's saying essentially the same thing to the Galatians and to us. The reason that we who are believers who know doctrinally the gospel but don't live by it is because we forget it, because we are ignoring that which is obvious, our brokenness, the brokenness around the world, and our inability to do anything about it. We've deceived ourselves. It may be because of fear. There are a number of people who might say, well, I'm not sure it's all that clear. I mean, it does seem kind of simple, doesn't it? You know, the only thing that determines life and death, right with God, not right with God, our life is whether or not we trust that a man was born of a virgin, died in our place, rose again. And some people think, if that's all there is, I'm not sure I'm understanding. And they're afraid that there is more to it. Other people are afraid that it's not enough. Certainly that seemed to be the Galatians situation. They believed that it was necessary, but they also needed to add to the grace. It's kind of like the poster that sometimes is seen and hung, out, hung up on walls and you see it in Christian bookstores. Sometimes it's a cat hanging from a tree and says, all God does is ask that you do your best and God will come and do all the rest. Which basically means grace is supplemental insurance not transition from life to death. And we get confused. And we think, maybe there's more. And people like the Galatians had met come along and they teach that the gospel is Jesus plus. And we're afraid maybe they're right. Perhaps even, I don't know if it's more, but just as common is pride. I mean, there's a sense in which, I mean, who wants to go hiking toward heaven on somebody else's record? I mean, in my own life, there's an aspect of it this way. I proposed to Carolyn. She said yes. I mean, I would really not like for her to tell me, but I thought you were somebody else. You know, 
you know, I, you know, I thought you were somebody totally different. I was thinking it was so-and-so's record. And so it's understandable that we would think, but how can we go to, I want to merit, I want to deserve, I want to earn. There's a pride factor, too, that the gospel tells us that we cannot earn, that we are not good, and we have to admit that we are not good in order to receive the benefits of it. And, and pride just, we don't want to do that. Said that the church is the only organization in the history of the world that the requirement to become a member is to confess that you, they shouldn't let you in. And our pride pushes back against that because the gospel requires that we say there's nothing good about me that God said, that I can take and work with. But that God chose us despite ourselves and says, watch what I make out of that. And I think the gospel grates against our pride because it takes away the measuring stick that we like to use as we compare ourselves to other people. It's very difficult to compare yourself with somebody else and consider yourself superior in any way when the only thing that you have that says is what the creeds is that you have nothing. You're no better than anyone. But you are loved just like they are. And if you will trust, you are saved, you are loved by God, you will be made more than you can even imagine. Our pride pushes against it. But we need to remember that it is true that we cannot accept the gospel until we accept that we need the gospel. And we will not accept that we need the gospel until the gospel is all we have. And the fact is, many of us have way too much. And therefore, we don't recognize our need of the gospel. We enjoy it, we like it, but it is a supplement to our lives rather than our life itself. And here, what Paul is saying very uh, loudly is that you have been given the gospel. The gospel was clearly presented to you. Do you understand that the gospel is not about you? The gospel is a billboard proclaiming Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. And do you see that the gospel is an indicative before it's an imperative? In other words, what it means, it's a statement about you who believe in Christ more than it is an action of anything you've done. It's a declaration of what God has done for you. That's the gospel. Paul, in these words, when it's difficult for us to swallow, he does speak to us in another way because when he says, look, you've heard it, or in other words, you've seen it. His language, which is a language of epiphany, dealing with the vividness by which we have heard and understood the gospel, that we have seen it, Paul also helps us with the remedy to our functional unbelief. He says the answer to our problem, when we look at the cross, is to see a greater vivid Jesus against which we become very little. When we struggle with our own worth and works, the answer is to always look at Christ on the cross. And Paul says, you've heard it. Then he moves on and he says, not only have you heard it, but you have experienced it as well. We see that in verses 2 through 5. Paul says, you've experienced its power. And he begins with a series of questions, which sort of cracks me up because he says, let me ask you only this. And then he runs a list of like six or seven questions here. But they're related. And Paul only wants to know one thing. But he's on a roll. The fact that he asks many questions shows you how serious he is, how intense it is, that He's just asking this so that you'll look at this truth 
from a number of different directions. And he says, let me just ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And it's an interesting statement, and it's something that we need to take note of, is because Paul was saying something here that should clarify one of the theological debates that sometimes happens within the church. Paul says that when you believed, you received the Spirit. That's what he's telling the Galatians. The question of when we receive the Spirit is resolved by what Paul is saying. When anyone who believes, the Spirit comes to dwell. Because otherwise it's an inappropriate question. Because if it's the way sometimes it's taught, it's some of you might have received the Spirit, some of you still need to receive the Spirit, until it shows itself in some other way. And in some circles, it's a matter of expressing itself through the speaking in tongues or some other uh, ecstatic uh, expression. Paul doesn't say that. Paul says, here's the question. Did you receive the Spirit? Which implies that they'd receive the Spirit, which is one of the telltale signs that Paul's talking to Christians. He's talking to us as well. Because only Christians have the Spirit. But Paul says that when we have believed we don't receive just a deposit of God and then we spend the rest of our lives kind of accruing more and more until we have a full account. We receive the full power of God in his spirit who is at work at the very moment we believe. And Paul asking them this question, he's asking, well, it's rhetorical, he's also asking a personal question. And so we need to be thinking about it in these terms, not just hearing the question that he's asking somebody else, but as Paul is asking this, we need to be like this. Brian, did you receive the Spirit because you behaved or because you believed? Eric, did you receive the Spirit because you behaved or because you believed? Ken, did you receive the Spirit because you behaved or because you believed? Every one of us needs to be asking ourselves that question on a regular basis. Did I receive the Spirit because I behaved or because I believed? That's exactly what Paul is asking. And he wants us to personalize this because even though he's not asking in writing for them to write back, I choose A, um, we all must ask ourselves the question. And the obvious answer from the scripture is, we received because we believed. And the Galatians knew that. And that's what Paul would have expected them to respond. But here's the mistake the Galatians were making and the mistake that we often make. The Galatians came to when Paul was with them and would sing, nothing in my hands I bring but simply to the cross I cling. And then somebody taught them trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And before long, they were singing with Sinatra. I did it my way. I mean, the whole hymnal has changed entirely <laughs> because people teaching them that it is about them, that what Jesus did is important and essential, but not sufficient. And we begin to focus on how did I do? What did I do? What did you do? What didn't you do? And we become very confused because we take our eyes off of what God did because we believed. And Paul goes on and he asks another question. He says, are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by your flesh? In other words, after everybody answers the right way, realizing that we received the Spirit because we believed. Paul then, in his translation of this, says, do you really think that you're going to obtain all that God has promised by your own efforts, your talent, and your charm? I mean, do you think that that's going to that's going to get you what you think you're wanting, that you want? The biblical answer is no. My answer all too much is, yeah, that's pretty much what I think. Not on a doctrinal quiz, but it's the way that I live my life. You see, I make the same mistake that the Galatians do, and most of us make this mistake at some time, and Paul says, no wonder you're foolish. 
And think of it this way in another situation. Most of you, part of the church, know that years ago I had cancer. I had emergency surgery, and part of my was to have a colon resection. Because it was emergency surgery, I had a colostomy and a colostomy bag for a year. I was blessed. I had a tremendous surgeon, tremendous doctor who was world-class and pioneered certain techniques to deal with colorectal issues that others were employing throughout the world. So imagine the time was time for my reversal surgery. Carolyn and I went and meet with the guy and sit down with him and say, look, we appreciate everything you've done. You've explained things tremendously, so we understand how this works and what you're trying to do. And we've done some research on our own. And so I'll tell you what, I'll take it from here. I'll do the surgery to reverse the colon. But you know, you can hang around, and if I mess anything up, you can, you can just jump in there and fix whatever it is I mess up. <laughs> but that's exactly what we do to God. We began with the power that was given to us, and it is ours. And yet we live our lives our way because somebody has come along and said, look, all you need to do is read the manual and follow the directions. That's all that matters. And then when we mess things up, we say, God, you can come in and fix this. Get me out of the jam that I put myself into by not trusting in your grace. But by working according to my own understanding, my own whims, my own desires. I've not only hurt myself, I've hurt those who are around me by doing that very thing. And Paul says it's foolishness. And Paul finishes in verse 5 and he says with another question. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing, uh, hearing with faith? And Paul's question here reminds us that Christianity is not just about obedience and it's not just about doctrinal assent, assent to certain doctrinal propositions, but Christianity is experienced, that we receive the Spirit at the time that we have believed. And because we have believed and we have the Spirit, the power of God is at work within us and we continue to experience that power as long as we are plugged in to the power source. And so Paul says, look, you've heard it, you've experienced it, and then he moves on for the rest of this particular passage and says, and it's the way things have always been. In verse 6, he says this, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's an interesting passage considering the situation. So the Judaizers had come and convinced the Galatians that they needed to follow the law of Moses. Circumcision practice, cleansing rituals, that their moral behavior, their following of these rules was necessary to supplement what Christ has done, to finish what apparently he hadn't been sufficient to do. And Paul, recognizing that they keep raising up the authority of Moses, kind of plays poker here and says, I'll see you, Moses, and I'll raise you, Abraham. Moses was important as the lawgiver, but Abraham is the father of our faith. Without Abraham, there is no Moses. Most of you probably know the story of Abraham. Chosen out of his paganism, God promised him that through you I will bless all the nations. Go from this place. Abraham says, where am I going? And God said, I'll let you know when you get there. And amazingly, Abraham 
did it, as the scripture tells us, because he believed God. And the scripture is very clear in both the Old Testament and here. Because he believed God, he was credited as being righteous. He himself was not righteous. If you know his story, you know that Abraham, despite certain aspects that were, uh, were um, uh, we would appreciate about him, the guy was deeply flawed. On his journey, with the promise that he believed from God that he would be, through him, all nations would be blessed, God is with him. God had chosen him. Abraham runs into the first strong leader and who is attracted to his wife, and Abraham pimps her out so that he might live. He doesn't do this once. He does this other times as well. So it's not just the moment of fear. It's a character flaw within his life. The one who God is with is afraid of some other man. It's quite clear that when you look at the scriptures and you look at Abraham's life, despite the fact that God had chosen him, God had promised him, God has blessed him, that there's enough deficit in his account that we're not looking at him and saying, there's the example that we want. No wonder God chose him. We see a broken, frightened, self-saving man, just like I am, just like you are. And yet God has said at the time they interacted with him and continues to say, but he believed God and he was credited with righteousness. Credited means he didn't have his own, but it was counted as if it was his. He was credited with righteousness. And Paul is saying to the Galatians and to us that the gospel was not some way that God figured out how to improve technology for salvation. It wasn't a new idea. It's the way things had always been, or maybe better specific, it's the way things had been ever since the fall. When God declared to Adam and Eve, who had been punished, removed from the garden, that he would send a Messiah who would be born of the seed of a woman, who would crush our enemy, the serpent's head, and that in him we would find the salvation and the hope and the restoration that we desire. Abraham was given another element of that same puzzle to fulfill it. We are not saved in Abraham, but through Abraham, Christ was born, that we who believe from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, from wherever we have come from, that we are trusting in him. We, when we believe, like Abraham, Paul is saying, were declared righteous the moment that we believed. As Paul says, as he's chipping away, in order to restore the beauty of the relationship that we have with God, in order that we would have what God wants us to be, he chips away and says, look, you've heard it. You've even seen it, with, seen it in your mind. You've experienced it. And this is consistent with all. There is no room for somebody else to bring in any other message. There is no other hope. And he essentially closes his case as he goes in these verses unfold we call covenant theology the benefit of God entering into covenant with his people blessing forgiving because of faith in his promise in his promised Messiah 
me wrap up with this. I'm sure many of you, probably most of you, have been to the Yorktown Victory Center. We went there back when the weather was a little warmer, went out into the back into the camp, the soldiers' camp. And when we were there, I don't know if this is a regular presentation or not, we were there, there was a, a doctor who was explaining how they would treat those who were wounded during the battles. One of the more interesting things that we hear and we kind of chuckle at because it is so foolish and so foreign to our ears, we've come a long way, is they tell us that if anybody showed signs of an infection or pro prolonged high fever, they would help them out by ridding them of their bad blood. They just kind of poke them and let all the blood drain out or a certain amount of blood, get the bad blood out. And if you get rid of the bad blood, then the good blood will take over and you'll heal. There were some flaws with that problem, with that, uh, with that theory. So a lot of people died from, well, lack of blood. Um, and, uh, and so they didn't have the strength to overcome whatever their issue was. Medical science has gone beyond that, realizing it doesn't matter whether people have been doing that for a long time, it just is foolish. There is truth of the biology of the human body that has always existed. And just because some people came along with a theory at some time that was slightly wrong, even though there may be some parts that would make logical sense, but nevertheless, it's still wrong. And in their wrongness, the effect of their wrongness is tragedy and death. The same is true for anybody who adds anything to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter that people have done this for years and years and years and had plausible reason to do it. There is a truth and there is a reality, and Apostle Paul declares what that truth and reality is, and that truth and reality is the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And the truth of that reality didn't come later. It actually has always been the truth. And the fact that people do things wrong is not an excuse to fall for their mistake. And unfortunately, the tragedy of falling for that mistake is death, not only for those who are hearing it, but for those who are infected by it. Paul is very clear in this passage for you and for me as he's writing to these people who are Christians, but who are living in a way that is denying the only hope, confusing one another, taken out of the power that is theirs, and confusing and even leading to death those who have not received the Spirit, who have not understood. As we've had this series, a number of people have told me that they've been looking at the gospel again, some for the first time. I'm delighted beyond my ability to express that this is helping you to reconsider the way that you relate to God, the way that you live your life. But understanding is the first step, but then the other part is, how do we respond? And here's the tension, here's the dilemma that happens sometimes when conscientious people who have lived their lives or been caught in the idea that it's faith plus believing, it's faith plus behavior, is once you recognize that how you were living or what you were believing is wrong, you then resolve to say, okay, now that I know it's wrong, I'm going to stop that. Do you see the problem here? That's just a new expression of the same thing you were doing before. I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't stop it. I'm suggesting that what Paul is fighting for is something that is more radical, more profound, and yet when we talk about it uh, here, here for a second, we're going to see it. It's not a matter of stopping, though we do want you to stop. 
whatever temptation become free from legalism. It's a matter of believing. The first thing we need to realize is, ah, the gospel, I understand, and stand amazed. And if we've been relating to God or relating to the gospel in a way that is wrong in any way, then the next thing we need to do is confess and repent. Lord, I was wrong. And my brokenness, my lack of understanding, however you express it, but confessing before God that we had sinned against him by belittling what Christ had done, by not fully believing or believing that somehow we could fix what God had not finished. Acknowledging our brokenness and our sin. And then it's believing again. Because the gospel says, that's exactly why Jesus came. And when we confess and repent and believe, we're cleansed of our sin and we are empowered to live righteous and we're credited with the righteousness of Christ. And so I want to just challenge you as you're thinking about the way that you relate to the gospel. Don't just stop being a legalist. See the glory of God's grace that is expressed in the gospel and expressed at this table.